The poet Percy Shelley famously said that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Now, of course, you'd expect a poet to say that about his own craft and profession, but there's a good deal of truth in that remark. You take, you take the politicians and the lawyers and all the military planners, I'll take the poets and the writers, and I'll control the culture eventually. Actually, I'll control it in relatively short order. Go ahead. Take all the military guys, take all the politicians, give me the writers and the poets. Real power resides ultimately in the Word. And for us, that means real power and authority resides in the Word of God. Of course, we don't believe this. When we read and pray and sing the Psalms, this word, this poetry, we are confronting the one who can undo all the masters of the universe gathered for some economic summit in Aspen, Colorado, or Davos, Switzerland. Poetry can do this. The poetry of the Psalms. Of course, in our day, at least for many, poetry has a sort of you know, wispy, effete, a kind of connotation. It's a wine and cheese crowd thing, poetry. But the psalmists are warrior poets. They're warrior poets. Worship is warfare, and the psalms are poems. Poems for soldiers. That means their poems, well, leaving aside what this says about poetry in general, God's basic endorsement of it, but these poems for soldiers means they're poems for people in the grit and the grime and the distress of life. And our text from Psalm 34 is no different. The title of the psalm tells us that this is the psalm of David, the psalm he wrote, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech. And Abimelech drove him out and he went away. It's the incident from 1 Samuel where David feigns madness. He pretends he's insane before the king of Gath. And he celebrates in this psalm the salvation of the Lord, his deliverance from the situation, that that extolling the Lord's hearing His cry is in verses 4-7 through of the psalm. But the text is general enough to apply to any act of deliverance. And for us, it points us to the great act of salvation and deliverance. The God who has heard our distress and our cries in Jesus Christ. I want to look at the text under three headings. In verses 1-3 through we have praise. And then in the middle of the psalm, verses 8 through 14, we have instruction. And then in verses 15 through 22, we have divine discrimination. (laughs) Divine discrimination. 
Praise, instruction, and discrimination, if you will. So first, Psalm 34. Let's look at the praise. David is expressing the sheer joy of liberation. He says, I will bless or I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. You know, the first thing about praise is that it's, re- it's reflexive. It's responsive to what God has already done. And when we lose sight of that, it's difficult to give praise or to render praise or to find freedom and joy and delight in praise. Praise is not so much a command, although it is that, as a reflex. We magnify the one who has already magnified himself on our behalf. In that sense, praise is simply acknowledging reality. It's simply stating, God has done this. I will bless him. He has shown himself to be blessed, to be magnificent, and so I'll magnify him. David is determined. Notice there's an act of will in the text. You know, I will bless. His praise will always be. He's determined that the high praises of God are going to be in his mouth and that he's going to engage in them at all times. And for us, this means a centering on the objective reality, independent of how we feel, or even how things are going for us personally. The objective reality that God, the great creator, has acted for you in Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news that independent of how you feel or how it's going for you, God is for you and he loves you and he's decided on your behalf and he's acted. The sky is blue no matter what you think about it. And God has greatly magnified his mercy and his salvation for you and towards you no matter what you think about it. And so we are to respond to this objective reality with praise at all times. Now, of course, this doesn't mean he'll do nothing but sing. But it does mean that praise is going to be a recurring feature of his life. You know, when we hear, I will praise the Lord at all times, His praise will always be on my mouth, we realize that this can be done in a way that's trivial or trite. Right? There are people who know how to, if you will, praise God in a way that can make you cringe. I'm sure you've had this experience. Perhaps you haven't. This, This text certainly doesn't mean saying things like, Praise Jesus or thank you, Jesus, at every possible opportunity. Like our problem as Presbyterians tends to lie on the other end of the spectrum where we shy away from expressions of rejoicing. That tends to be our problem. But the text reminds us that it does matter. It matters deeply what we fill our mouths with. And praise and thanksgiving without triteness are to be the distinguishing forms of speech. Because the self-giving God has spoken in Jesus on your behalf. Talk back. He says in verse 2, I'm going to glory or I'm going to boast in the Lord. 
course, boasting is a basic human trait. You know, pride and hubris, they mark our existence at almost every point. And David says here, I'm going to take my place among the humble and the lowly. The afflicted, he says. The afflicted will hear my praise and rejoice. The proud will scoff. Right? The masters of the universe gathered in a summit, they're going to scoff. But the common people, just as they did with Jesus' teaching, will receive it. They will hear the praise of God gladly. I have this wonderful book. I'm sure some of you have it as well. It's a, it's a book of Puritan prayers, but they're in the form of poems, poetic prayers called the Valley of Vision. If you don't have it, you really should get it. And I've always loved the title because it reminds us that the vision of God's greatness is rightly seen in the valley. The valley is the place of vision. The valley is where David was in life. The valley of distress or frailty or weakness. The valley into which Christ has come to rescue us. We do need to see ourselves in our own littleness, in our own insignificance if God is to be big, if we're to be a God-magnifying people. And David acknowledges that here. It's only when self-boasting stops that you can rightly boast or glory in the Lord. The idea of glorying in the Lord here is boasting in God. And so people whose mouths are not full of boasting in the Lord are generally full of themselves. And notice, David calls this uh, the assembly to join with him in a corporate act of praise. Glorify, the text says in verse 3, or magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You can't do this by yourself. That's why corporate worship is sort of a kindling place to stir and to kindle and refresh your devotion and your life of praise and boasting and magnification of God. So let your praise of God and song be vigorous and full-throated. We are to sing, if you will, with a robustness which befits the divine audience, but also the divine action which has already taken place on your behalf. In Jesus Christ, you've been heard, you've been visited, you've been saved, and you've been delivered. That's why we sing. So that's praise. Secondly, I want to look at the instruction. And here I mean the instruction for new life that delivered people are given. In this psalm, you find it in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, as we know, needs to be cultivated. Young children generally don't like filet mignon, they prefer McDonald's. Of course, I had a grandfather who had the same preferences as well, but we have, to, we have to leave him aside for a moment and not count him. 
used to constantly tell me how wise he was that he could have a hamburger and all these other people were going out and buying steaks. But the point is not that taste is, is relative or purely subjective. The point is that my grandfather, like many children, had underdeveloped taste. <laughs> taste has to be cultivated. You know, Calvin says, if we've lost our taste for Scripture, he says it's probably because we've lost our taste buds. If we have no taste for these things, then there's something wrong. And so the Psalms are here so that we don't remain childish in our tastes. Right? That's why we don't read. That's why the Psalms don't read like Hallmark cards. They read like poetry for soldiers. Warrior poems. They're here so that you cultivate a certain kind of taste. David is sure in this text that if we could just taste the goodness of the Lord, we would sing. Taste leads to vision. Notice, taste and see that the Lord is good. He goes on and he exhorts us in the very foundation of wisdom. He says in verse 9, Fear the Lord, you holy people. You know, we fear God. We hold Him in awe and reverence because of His goodness to us in Jesus Christ. That's why we fear God. Taste and see. You know, the fear of the Lord, the things David starts here with, call them reverence and desire. They are the, they are the frame for true instruction. Now, you could be a great teacher, even if you're not naturally a good teacher, if your students have two things, reverence for the subject matter and some sort of taste or desire for it. And that's what is, the psalmist is trying to instill in you. He's, the frame in which we receive teaching from God is a frame of reverence, fear the Lord, and desire, tasting, seeing, yearning. You know, we are not just purely rational creatures, or thinking creatures, or willing creatures, or purposing creatures, or acting creatures. We are desiring creatures, tasting creatures, seeing creatures, and a large part of our problem is we are ravished by the wrong things. We have disordered and skewed tastes. And so we come to the instruction then, having been prepared. We come to it in verse 11. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And to teach the fear of the Lord, he says in verse 12, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days. It's often put in the form of a question in many, in many translations. You know, who among you loves life and desires to see many good days? Question mark. But the point is, that a redeemed people are lovers of life. That the, the Christian faith is a life-affirming faith. Even when we are against things. Even when Jesus can say, um, you have to hate your own life. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross. 
means we are putting to death what is disruptive of life, sin, what attacks human flourishing. He calls us into discipleship so that he might give us life and life abundantly. The purpose of Christian renunciation, of Christian no's to sin and to the self, are so that we might flourish in the, in the new nature that God has given us in Christ. God is all about us loving life. But he sets the terms on which we can love it fully and freely. And so, if you want to live a long, faithful, fruitful life, pay attention to this instruction the psalmist is saying. You've been delivered Now, how do you love and enjoy life? You know, the sad fact is, men do love death. We shouldn't take for granted that everybody loves life. The Bible tells us that men love death, that they've made a covenant with death. It's naive to assume all men love life. You just have to wander through a, a, through a vinyl record store and look through some album covers. You can see that all men don't love life. As one scholar put it, a person shows little familiarity with history or even his own soul who would deny that there is some sort of deep death wish at work in the human heart. So how do we live then if we desire life? Well, the psalmist tells us in verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Life and death. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And it's a restless, untamed evil, James says. It's remarkable we cannot tame the tongue. But whoever guards this tongue preserves his life Solomon tells us, whoever opens wide his lips comes to ruin. If you want to live, the first thing you have to do is tame your tongue. Much human dissent and destruction and distress comes from stuff we've said or others have said to us. The way it was said and the content that was said. Verse 14 says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Peace in the church, peace among nations, peace in the family, these are inestimable goods. But it's not our natural state. Notice that peace or wholeness, shalom, it has to be pursued or chased after. So there's a couple things here that are relevant for the church, I think. The first one is nine-tenths, nine-tenths of peacekeeping in the church is to keep your tongue free from evil and false chatter. Notice the deep connection between this and the opening of the psalm. If your mouth is full of boasting or extolling the Lord at all times, magnifying His goodness, then your tongue is going to be free of destructive speech. Let me tell you, gossips, divisive people, slanderers, people who talk maliciously, they are not people who are magnifying the Lord with their mouth. 
The spirit of praise displaces evil. So the third point then is in verse 15 through 22. And here we're talking about divine discrimination. Look at verses 15 and 16 in the psalm. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The, the assertion here is that God discriminates He differentiates between the righteous and the wicked. The Psalms make this affirmation repeatedly, of course. But it's a difficult affirmation to embrace to anyone who is thinking properly. It has some difficulties, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't always look like God is discriminating between the righteous and the wicked. If you were a Christian in Mosul, in northern Iraq in the last 60 days, you would think, in fact, the exact opposite's occurring. And I won't multiply examples or we'd be here forever. So we have to do something with this affirmation that God's discriminating between the righteous and the wicked when in, that he takes note that he's not in difference. When sometimes it seems like that's not the case. Notice the text is, is insistent on this. His eyes and ears are open to the righteous. His face is against the wicked. So unswerving is this discrimination, the text says, that he's going to cut off the memory of the wicked from the earth. God is committed, the text says, to eradicating evil from the face of the planet. Evil is... The human creatures absolute no before the face of the good and gracious God. But God, thank God, says no to our no. He refuses our refusals. That's why you and I are saved, because God refuses our refusal of God. And He is going to not let evil when he says no to evil, and that means he has to uproot it. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near or close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Right? The righteous in this text are not comfortable. <laughs> They're certainly not self righteous. They're hounded, like David was. They're hounded. They're brokenhearted. They're crushed. They're in the middle of painful, difficult challenges. And so whatever this discrimination of God is, it's something that takes place in and through our afflictions. Notice that. God discriminates, but the righteous are viewed as afflicted, as weak, as in distress. You can see this again in verse 19. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Now, David is not one of the counselors of Job who sees suffering as a sign of evil doing. And so this discrimination, how God discriminates, in what manner, it's not something that can be naturally discerned. 
The ones whom God is favoring and acting on their behalf in this text are the crushed and the broken and the weak. You know, the text reminds us that how we react to afflictions, to suffering, is a key indicator of our spiritual health. Right? The text says that it will slay the wicked. You know, the, the evil will slay the wicked and lead to their condemnation. But the righteous, crushed though they be, cry out to the Lord and they are delivered. And here we get to see the divine discrimination, I think, a little more clearly. This comes into focus in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. I hope you know where that text is cited in the New Testament. It is cited in John chapter 19. Or maybe chapter 20. I, I forgot to look the reference up. But anyway, it is cited of the crucifixion account of our Lord. This text, this being broken, is fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. John uses these very words of the soldier's decision not to break Jesus' legs. Now let me ask you this. Did it appear that God was discriminating on behalf of the righteous and judging the wicked while Jesus was being flogged and slaughtered and executed by the Roman state? That doesn't look like much discrimination. But it should remind us that God was in fact discriminating there. And he still is discriminating. This is what we must do when we read the Psalms and they tell us that God discriminates, that he's just, that he's good, that he distinguishes. And then we look at the world and we wonder about it. That wondering should drive you to this broken man on the cross. And tell you that in the midst of your distress or your anguish or your sense of abandonment, God sees and he discriminates and he takes note. And this means finally Jesus is the righteous one in this text. He's the poor one who cried out to the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's the one who bore our burdens, who was crushed and broken hearted. In Him, God discriminates on your behalf. This is the good news. Look at verse 22. None of those who take refuge in Him shall be condemned. This discerning judgment of God means there's no judgment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how God discriminates. So we have been saved. We have been saved. There's an objective reality out there that we respond to. And so our mouths are to be full of the high praises of God. And we're being saved, and thus we need to heed instruction. And instruction in this text is taste, see, listen, guard your tongue, turn from evil, do good, seek peace. And we shall be saved. For God is going to finally make this discrimination between the righteous and the wicked, which can be often be hidden in history and was hidden in Jesus Christ. He's going to make it an open fact at the judgment. Meanwhile, in the midst 
of many afflictions in the midst of our poor and often crushed and broken-hearted lives, nothing in heaven and on earth, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Magnify him. Amen.